Jesus, just thank you so much for bringing us here and just just give us the ability, Lord, to let go of uh, things that may be keeping us from being able to focus completely on you, Lord, and just help us to bring our hurts and our pains and our uh, our week to you, Lord Jesus, and to be able to to serve you and praise you and, and worship you this morning, Lord. And I pray for Alan as he comes and speaks, Lord, that you would speak truth through him, Lord. And just thank you so much for everybody that was able to make it here this morning. In your name, amen. Well, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Psalms. And our theme kind of has been our God who, or our God the... And today, we're thinking about the fact that our God is the author. And I want to start with the story. There was a talented young athlete, basketball player in the early 90s, who received a scholarship to play at Notre Dame. And he goes there, he's excited, he's, he has a great freshman season, everything seems like it's coming into place for him. And then he hears some news after his freshman season that kind of jolted him, that kind of shocked him, that kind of changed the course of, of his life as he saw it unfolding before him. Doctors discovered that he had this rare heart condition. I'm not going to try to say the name of it, but basically the upshot was that they said, if you continue to play basketball, uh, you could die. You could lose your life. Now, later, as he reflected on this, this is what he said about this uh, event in his life. He said, when you've played basketball since you were 10 years old, and then all of a sudden you have to stop, you have to reassess how you look at life, how you look at your job, how you look at your relationships, and you figure out what's more important. My life and being with my family, but most importantly, my faith, which strengthened through that time. I wasn't the Christian that I should have been at the time, but it was almost like a reality check for me. God didn't give me a disease, but he allowed it, and it was the best thing that happened to me, and it helped me reevaluate what I was doing in my life. You know, as this college student was living out the story of his life, one day he turned the page and everything changed. And the thing that he loved most was being taken away from him. And you know, as we look at Psalm 139 today, I want you to really take home one big thought, one key theme, and you see that when he says in verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I want you to take this thought with you that God is the author of your life. And this psalm, this chapter is going to shine four big spotlights on this truth. I'm just going to give them to you before I start. First is that God is an author all-knowing. God is an author all-present. God is an author all-powerful. And God is an author all-holy. 
First, God as an author all-knowing. You know, last week, Nick took us on a journey, kind of through the solar system. We got to kind of think about how big God is, how great he is. And my mind just can't comprehend some of those, some of those numbers, but just the fact that there's a star out there that could swallow 1,500 of our suns just makes me just, I don't know what to think. You know, it just makes me stand in awe. Okay? And in this chapter, we're really kind of going the other direction. We're going the other way to see that we have a God who is not just a, a God of cosmic uh, power, but he's also a God of really intimate knowledge of our lives. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 139. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know, David is just kind of floored by the fact that the God who created this universe knows him. Now, what we mean by the word know is not always what, I don't think is what David is talking about here. You ever had the experience where you meet someone new and you kind of go back and forth trying to figure out if there's someone out there in the universe that you both know? Now, when you live in Iowa, it's not too hard to find that person sometimes. And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I know him. Yeah, that's great, you know. And it's kind of this little comfort thing that helps ease an awkward moment. But that's not the kind of knowledge that David is talking about here. He's talking about the kind of knowledge that God has where it says he has searched us. God's examined us. He's studied us. He knows everything about us. And verses 2 to 4 really show us the extent of that knowledge. Verse 2 says, you know when I sit and when I rise. You know, God knows my daily activities. Verse 3, or sorry, the second part of verse 2 says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. God knows our thoughts. Verse 3 says, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. God knows our habits. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. And God even knows our future before it happens. Now, this concept of a God who knows my habits, knows my thoughts, knows my future, can feel really wonderful and terrifying at the same time. Now, it's wonderful because all of us have this longing to be known. And what we kind of realize as we go through life is that even the very best friendships, the very best relationships that we can have as humans, don't really completely satisfy this longing that we have, this need to be known. You know, the closest relationship that many of us will have is, is with our spouse, but even with even within a marriage, it's amazing how often you find out new things about your spouse. Either some story from childhood that they just forgot to tell you, or how often you forget something that you really should know. Uh, for me, I constantly forget the fact that my wife is not like Parmesan cheese on her spaghetti. Now, that seems like a really small thing, but it just it shows you that these relationships that we have with each other you know, they never fulfill completely that desire we have to be really known, to have someone who completely gets us, who understands us, who knows us inside and out. You know, the fact that God knows your future means that not only does he know your past and he knows you today, but he knows you better than you know yourself. 
because he can still see the chapters that are coming up. He can still see the end of what your life looks like. Now, I said that this, that this knowledge, that this concept can be both wonderful and terrifying. But look down at verse 5. David says, You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They sowed fig leaves or they hid in the, in the garden. And God came and said, where are you? When Jonah refused to go to Nineveh, the Bible says he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And here David asks, where can I flee from your presence? Now, this word presence is the Hebrew word for face. And what David is saying is that everywhere he goes, God's face is there. He feels God's gaze. In the King James, it says, thou hast beset me behind and before. And so one reaction that David has to this is this feeling of being confined. He feels a little trapped and hemmed in. And the word wonderful he uses in verse 6 can also have the meaning of something that is beyond understanding. It's incomprehensible. It's not necessarily saying, I love this truth right now. It's saying, you know, this is, this is too high for me to grasp. This is too much for me to comprehend. And if this concept that this God knows us so completely that he knows our future, if it's hard, if it feels confining, if it feels tough for us to understand, you know, the culture we live in, everything around us tells us, you know, we determine our self-identity. We determine our reality. We're the captain of our, of our souls. But then David is feeling that same thing, but I want you to see what happens in, verse, in verses 8 and following. He says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So as David's working through this truth, this truth that I am never hidden from God's face. He kind of imagines the, the dimensions of the earth. You know, if I go up to the heavens, if I, if I ascended to space, you're there. If I go down to the depths of the earth, to the deepest cave, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the morning, he says, if I go to the farthest point to the east, if I settle on the far side of the sea, you know, imagine him in Jerusalem, the sea is to the west. The farthest point to the east, the farthest point to the west, the highest point in the heavens, the lowest point beneath. Everywhere I go, you are there. I can't escape it. But then notice the change in tone. You know, he says, if I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea. But then he says this, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So David realized, he realizes that if I can't escape from God's presence, there's a flip side to that. That means that no matter what happens, God's hand is always there. Always there to guide me, always there to hold me fast. You know, what talks about God's right hand in Scripture is talking about the full might and power of God. That full might and power of God is there to hold me fast. If I go into the darkest dark, and when he talks about darkness, he's not talking about necessarily literal darkness, but you know, when you think about poetry, darkness symbolizes those worst moments of your life. Even in the worst depression, even in the worst tragedy, that darkness, it says, is like light to God. That darkness shines like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, if this truth sinks down, it's going to change you. Change the way you look at your whole life. So we've seen the, the author all-knowing and the author all-present. Verses 13 to 18 shows us the author all-creative. It says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them has came to be. So David has, David has gone from asking, how can I flee from God's presence to kind of this feeling of overwhelming praise that the God who knows me inside out, the God who can hold my hand in the darkest hour has also planned all the days of my life. He's written them down in his book before I was born. You know, the first time that I really discovered this passage was, was when I was a student at Iowa State. And the thing that I really remember vividly about that moment in life is how filled with uncertainty it was. You know, thinking back, it's just like everything is like a question mark, you know. Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? And so when I found this passage, it was just like God kind of gave me this, this light, um, this, this rope to hold on to. And so I said, you know what, i got to memorize this passage. And so I started memorizing it. And, and I can still to this day remember walking between classes uh, at school and just repeating these words over and over. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. And just letting those words come over me. And, and I just remember that this just calmness, this feeling that, you know what? The God who created all things, it says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And it really, it really changed me. And now what I didn't realize at the time was 
that that uncertainty you feel when you're in college doesn't go away when you get a job, doesn't go away when you get married, it doesn't go away when you have kids, it, it, it just continues, all right? It's, it's the world that we live in. It's this, this unknowing, this, this, this worry that, that gnaws at us and creeps into our mind to say, you know, man, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen? And to be able to have this truth to go back to, to say, God, you wrote down the days of my life before one of them came to be. Now, if God is the author of your life, that means that he's put you in a, in a spot that's very unique. He's placed you in a spot where you are uniquely positioned to, to serve him. You know, Nick's been talking about this idea of occupying your street. You have a unique street. You have a unique purpose, a unique plan for your life that you, only you, can fulfill. You're living a story that no one else can live. In verses 17 and 18, David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Which takes us to the last six verses. And tempted not to, not to cover them, just kind of gloss over them, but, but we gotta, we got to close, we got to, we got to read them. But they're jar, they feel jarring, they feel out of place. Verse 19 to 22 says, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, I don't know exactly what's going through David's mind, but I think it might be this that after he has spent this time considering how great God is and how good God is, and the fact that God has written out the days of his life, then he comes to this thought that, man, God, what is going on with all the wickedness? and the bloodshed, and the evil in this world. Why does a loving God allow the wicked to live? You think of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and David is really being just honest with God here. He's being really raw. He's not hiding or holding anything back. Now, reflecting on verses like this, Tim Keller says, One lesson is that God does indeed hate injustice. Most Western Christians haven't experienced much in the way of violent mistreatment. And we should let these psalms help us feel the desperation and helplessness of those who have. God is holy, and one day he will judge evil forever. Now, I don't believe that we are, as, as New Testament uh, Christians, uh, and, and when we follow Jesus' teachings, I don't believe that we are supposed to pray like this today. Um, Jesus said to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But I do believe that we can be honest with God. We can bring our questions to God. We can bring our doubts to God. And, you know, when we think about this truth that God is in control, there's all these questions that kind of fall down on us. And the biggest one is just this existence of evil, this existence of pain in the world. And it's a mystery, You know, a lot of people refuse to believe in an all-powerful God who would allow suffering. So what they do, they run away from God by pretending 
or by telling themselves that God doesn't exist, okay? They, they avoid the problem by saying, you know what, God can't exist because of the evil that's in the world, because of the suffering that's in the world. But what happens when you do that? You say, okay, God doesn't exist. It doesn't change the fact that suffering is there. All it does is make it so that that suffering has no meaning, no purpose. It's just events that happen, kind of random chance. Good things happen, bad things happen, but there's no meaning, there's no purpose. There's no story behind that. Other people might say that, well, God's in control, but he really can't know the future. He just kind of reacts to it and responds to it. But if you have a God like that, then you also lose the God who can see into the darkness of your life and hold you with his right hand. So remember the basketball player that I talked about at the beginning. Um, I'm going to show you a clip here in a second, but uh, this basketball player, his name is Monty Williams, and he did go on to play basketball again. In fact, he became an honorable mention All-American his senior year. Uh, he was drafted, and he played in the NBA for nine seasons. He married his college sweetheart, and they had five kids. Uh, but some of you guys might have seen this in the news. A month ago, his wife died tragically in a car accident. Um, she, was, she was driving in, in an area that's a 40-mile-an-hour zone, and she was hit head-on by someone driving 90 miles an hour with, I, I, I think, from what they heard, a dog sitting on her lap. And um, I'm going to play this clip. I just want you to watch it and, uh, and, just, and just listen to this. Romans, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All of this will work out. As hard as this is for me and my family and for you, this will work out. I know this because I've seen this in my life. See, back in 1990, at the University of Notre Dame, I had a doctor look me in the face and say, you're going to die if you keep playing basketball. And I had testing done, test after test, shipping me all over the place to try to figure out a way for me to play and it didn't work out. And I kept that from Ingrid. She knew I was having some tests done, but she didn't know the severity of the situation. So my career was over at the age of 18. And we had a press conference, and I left the press conference um, by myself, and I went to her dorm room, and I told her what happened. And the very next word out of her mouth, words out of her mouth after we um, probably cried a little bit. She said, honey, Jesus can heal your heart. And I'm evidence that God can work it out. I don't care what you're going through. This is hard for my family, but this will work out. And my wife would punch me if I were to sit up here and whine about what's going on. That doesn't take away the pain. But it will work out because God causes all things to work out. You just can't quit. You can't give in. See, the Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America teaches us to just 
numb that, and it's not true, but it is true. All you got to do is look around you. Get outside of these walls and you know it's true. This will work out. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean we don't have tough times and we're going to have tough times. What we need is the Lord. And that's what my wife tried to exhibit every single day. Now, I'm going to close with this, and I think it's the most important thing that we need to understand. Everybody's praying for me and my family which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. And when we walk away from this place today, let's celebrate because my wife is where we all need to be. And I'm envious of that. But I got five crumb snatchers I got to deal with. <laughs> let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. What Christ did on the cross is important. Let's not lose sight of that family that also lost someone that they love. I love you guys. I hope I get a chance to hug and shake a hand and give a kiss on the cheek, but let's keep what's important at the forefront. Thank you. So, and I don't show you that to, to try to lift up Monty Williams, but I want you to see that, man, here's a guy who has reached the darkest moment of his life, and he says, God is there. God is holding me with his right hand. And the only way that someone can say something like that is if they have let this truth sink down deep, that God is the author of my life. And nothing can surprise him. Nothing can shake him. Nothing can throw that off course. And that last point of there is that God is an author all holy you know, there was only one man who ever lived who knew the story of his life before he lived it. One man. In Hebrews 10, it gives us a conversation between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. It says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. What was written about Christ in the scroll? The thing that was written was that he was going to come 
He was going to die on a cross. He was going to be a sin offering for me. He was going to pay the price that the all-holy God required. So now we're going to take the bread and the cup. We're going to remember Jesus. You know, if you don't know Christ, you don't need to worry about this. We want you to know Christ. I'd love to talk to anyone who wants to pray afterwards. Um, But for those of us that know him, man, as you take this bread and this juice, just remember that Jesus Christ came and he died for you. He saw the story that was written for him before any of it happened. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are a good God. God, we don't understand what happens in our life all the time, but I just pray that you would help us to rest and trust you. You are a God who's in control of the days of our life. Lord, even this day right now, March 13th, you've seen it. You know it before it happens. We love you, God. Thank you for the body broken, the blood shed, for the one who saw what needed to be done and will, willingly offered himself for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So come out to the waters. Come let the broken sea. Come all your sons and daughters. His love changes everything. Come when the fear is fighting. We find in the reason came. Come on and let the light in. Your love changes everything. God is the author of your life. And the amazing thing is that even though he knows everything about us, even though he knows our past, he promises this, that if we come to him and repent from our sins, that that is one thing that he will forget. He will remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. And look at these last two verses of Psalm 139. You know, what started at the beginning of the chapter is just a statement becomes a prayer in verse 23 where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, we just pray that would be our prayer this week as we remember that you're the author of our life, that we would invite you in. We would ask you to search our hearts, to know us, to test our anxious thoughts. Let us Put them on you uh, and, and, and receive that forgiveness and love that you give us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.